Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Bats, those strange flying mammals of the night have a very particular viewpoint on the world. Quite unconventional, one might imagine, if there's anything conventional about being a bat. They move through twilight into darkness, feast on airborne prey, navigate with precise echolocation, instinctively, instantaneously evading obstacles as they collect their meals. Fed and happy, it's back to the cave, the cavern, the hollow of a tree, or even some man-made structure surreptitiously suspended upside down in eaves and gables or in the gaps of plankwood. Humans might live for years never noticing them in their homes, schools, factories, or sometimes military barracks. Which is why, many years ago, one new and conniving department of the U.S. military considered the bat as potentially a useful and insidious weapon. Hello and welcome back to American History Hit. I'm your host, Don Wildman. Happy you're listening. By the heady World War II days of summer 1942, the United States was just beginning to turn the corner on how to fight a two-front conflict of dreadful scope and consequence. The previous December 7th, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor had caught the U.S. Navy flat-footed. But as we've discussed on previous episodes, the U.S. was unprepared for this war in most regards. Certainly, we had little capacity in the area of espionage, and it was high time to catch up. A new book authored by John Lyle, entitled The Dirty Tricks Department, Stanley Lovell, the OSS, and the Masterminds of World War II Secret Warfare, addresses the fateful hiring of industrial chemist Stanley Lovell by the famed warrior chieftain William Donovan, Wild Bill Donovan, head of the OSS, Office of Strategic Services, the precursor to the Central Intelligence Agency. This top-secret collaboration led to a diabolical division of the OSS, a crack team of scientists headed up by Lovell, responsible for a whole slew of nefarious tricks of the trade, all designed to tip the balance in the Allies' favor. So much of what we've seen and read in novels and movies over the years can really be traced back to Stanley Lovell's OSS Research and Development Branch, which opened a Pandora's box of weaponry and explosives, suicide pills and truth serums, not to mention forged documents and assassination plots. If all is fair in love and war, the OSS Research and Development Branch proved it, exploiting love of country to justify some really nasty stuff in war. These guys played dirty, and it's all here between the covers. 
Thanks for joining us on American History Hit. John Lyle, congratulations on your book. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And that's got to be the best introduction to the book anyone's given. That was so Excellent. good. We're done with the podcast. Thank you so much. All right. <laughs> Tell us first how the OSS comes into being. The United States was oddly ignorant by choice, really, of all things espionage, wasn't it? Yeah, for the most part. So at the beginning of World War II, there were a few intelligence divisions, usually within the military branches. So military intelligence, naval intelligence, especially after the war started. William Donovan, this World War I war hero, a lawyer who was kind of friends with President Roosevelt, William Donovan wanted to coordinate this intelligence into one centralized agency. And so he started pitching to Roosevelt that the United States should create a new intelligence division that uh, coordinated information, that gathered intelligence from the different branches, and analyzed it in one place, and then informed the president what was going on. This is kind of what led to the development of the OSS. There was an attitude. I'm thinking of Henry Stimson, who was FDR's Secretary of War, I believe. There was a saying, you know, gentlemen don't read each other's email. Mm -hmm. The British were ahead of, way ahead of us with MI6 and all the rest. That was a European idea. Americans didn't like this conduct. But no sooner are we attacked by the Japanese, really, that this whole idea gets supercharged and we have to get on board. As you say, the armed forces, each one of the different armed forces, had their own intelligence community, their own functions. And that would play a big part in because there was a lot of competition between these forces, as there is today, I'm sure. And that sort of undermined any central idea that you were talking about, sort of a cross-agencies idea. But all that changes under FDR, and he uses William Donovan to do this. Tell us about that process, the triggering of the OSS. Yeah, so Donovan had actually gone to Europe a few times on kind of FDR's command. So FDR wanted information about goings-on in Europe in the 1930s. This is before World War II broke out, but there are rumblings, and it's kind of obvious to people who are looking that there might be turmoil in the future. Mm. So Donovan goes to Europe, and he starts realizing that there probably might be a war that breaks out, especially in Germany. He meets some Nazi officials and realizes that things aren't looking too good. That's when he comes back to the United States and starts advocating for Roosevelt to create this. Roosevelt initially creates an organization called the Coordinator of Information, and Donovan was the head of the COI. The idea behind it was pretty simple, just gather intelligence and inform me what's going on in the world. Now, this gradually develops into the OSS, especially after Pearl Harbor and the United States gets more involved in this war. But you're right to say that the United States, it didn't have the same pedigree in this kind of secret warfare as the British say. So when Stanley Lovell, the main character of this book, when he's recruited by Donovan to head the R&D branch, which creates the secret weapons, documents, disguises for the OSS, he doesn't really know what to do, so he goes to Europe, he goes to the British, and he learns from their scientists mm. and tries to see, well, what are y'all doing? And we're going to take some of those interesting ideas and take them back to the United States. So there is a lot of borrowing going on here from people who actually do have that pedigree. Back up just a moment and talk about William Donovan. This is a man who does not get enough credit in the story of American military. He was called Wild Bill Donovan, and why is that? Yeah, Wild Bill Donovan. There are a few different explanations for the nickname. The one I think is right is that he was the commander of this division of young men. This is right before World War I. Mm -hmm. And he would take them on forced marches and make them do all kinds of grueling physical activity. And one of the young men basically said that this is a wild 
person. The, you know, this older guy is able to keep up with us young bucks. You know, this is a wild guy. So that seems to be where the nickname kind of came from for Wild Bill. But he was a famous warrior, was he not? I mean, he really distinguished himself. Absolutely. In World War One, he was in Europe. He got shot with a machine gun bullet through his leg and he's commanding this division. And so as he's laying in this hole, basically, People are getting blown up around him and he's shot through the leg. He's bleeding out, but he's yelling orders and they end up surviving and getting out of there. So he not only gets a Purple Heart, he gets the Medal of Honor, the highest military award in the United States. He becomes basically the most decorated soldier in the United States. So he's nationally famous. He runs afterward to become governor of New York. He loses that, but he was pretty close with Franklin Roosevelt since they're both from New York. They mm -hmm. both went to law school. And so that's how their relationship kind of developed. And even though they were in different political parties, Donovan was a Republican, they still had a liking for each other and a similar kind of personality, which is why FDR would tap Donovan to go to Europe and to find out what's going on. It was really a boys club <laughs> in those days and for the next decades afterwards. Well, definitely within the OSS and especially the CIA afterward, there's a common joke about the people that recruited that they were pale, male and Yale. Yes, exactly. It was very Ivy League. It's very interesting. Finally, on June 13th, 1942, the Office of Strategic Services is officially established by presidential order to serve the armed services with foreign intelligence. FBI handles the domestic. Army, Navy intelligence continues on. But here is this new branch, this new office, I should say, that's really responsible for new foreign intelligence. And then this is a big deal. I mean, we're just new at this. The Brits are going to teach us how to do this, uh, hold the hand of those agents and those supervisors who need to figure this out. Where is this network going to reach to? How is it going to hold out? It's an incredibly ambitious undertaking, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's not just that the OSS is tasked with gathering intelligence either. They're supposed to gather intelligence. They're supposed to have people at home who analyze that intelligence. But aside from that, they're also supposed to kind of spread propaganda, spread disinformation abroad, sabotage the enemy. It's a broader mission. One funny anecdote, though, about the intelligence gathering is that when Roosevelt creates the COI and then the OSS, and he puts Donovan in charge. You know, Roosevelt couldn't walk. He was basically wheelchair bound. And he referred to Donovan as my secret legs. He's mm. the guy who's going to walk around and gather this stuff for me. The hot spots of this business in those days are Switzerland, for sure. Alan Dulles is the big OSS agent there. Alan Dulles goes on to become a big deal with the CIA later on. But we have suddenly spies all over the globe, from Turkey to Austria, China, French Indochina, which is Vietnam, France, Norway, Hungary. I mean, it's suddenly all over the place, which is really how this entire war, I mean, we talk about it so often, World War II changes everything for America. It just globalizes the whole situation by necessity. But this is one of these operations that is about the United States getting ahead of the cart instead of always being led by the cart. It's trying to get this horse to work. Bill Donovan recruits Stanley Lovell. Tell us about this man, Stanley Lovell. Yes, yeah, Stanley Lovell before World War II is a relatively unknown entity. He's just an industrial chemist from around Boston, New England. He works in a shoe and leather factory before the war. So he's inventing ways to make better shoe soles and to turn industrial waste into useful products that companies can sell. Wow. He had a couple things going for him. One was that he was very inventive. And so he mm. kind of earned a name among chemists for being able to turn just 
wasteful products into useful things. So that helped him, his reputation. Another thing that also helped him is just that he happened to be from New England. Mm. And like you said, this is kind of an old boys club. A lot of these people know each other. And that's the case with Stanley Lovell. Right after Pearl Harbor, basically, Stanley Lovell is walking around Boston and he runs into the president of MIT, Carl Compton. And of course, they know each other. They're both mm. scientists around this area. Carl Compton stops Stanley Lovell and he says, you know what, Lovell, you're a chemist. And you're also a businessman because you work in these businesses. We need someone like that for this war. We need someone who can bridge the gap between the scientists and the businessmen because we're going to need to contract with businesses and universities and all that in order to create some things. Can you come to Washington and help us? And so pretty soon after that, Lovell turns in his notice that he's quitting his job. And on the notice that I found in the National Archives, it has a, a space that says reason for leaving. And it just says war. <laughs> <laughs> he's leaving for war. He's going to help. So he goes to Washington, D.C. And he eventually gets recruited into the OSS. But that's a very specific meeting. There's a pretty famous anecdote about this. Donovan wants a certain type of individual. Tell me what happens there, what he says. Yeah, this is one of the more interesting meetings that happens, is that when Stanley Lovell goes to Washington, D.C., he's originally not part of the OSS. He's working in the Quartermaster Corps, which supplies the army with stuff. It provides the mortuary needs for the army and all kinds of stuff. And he's also serving as an aide to another New England scientist and engineer named Vannevar Bush. Vannevar Bush is basically FDR's unofficial science advisor. Mm. He is like the main coordinator of all scientific research during this war for the United States. He's overall really in charge of like the Manhattan Project, mm. proximity fuses, radar, all kinds of stuff. So he's a really important guy. Stanley Lovell is serving as one of his aides and Vannevar Bush likes Stanley Lovell and Vannevar Bush is also in contact with William Donovan. William Donovan is looking for someone to head a new branch of the OSS that's going to create inventive weapons and gadgets. And so Vannevar Bush recommends Stanley Lovell to Donovan. So Lovell gets in the mail kind of a letter saying, we need you to come to this building at this time on this random evening. He doesn't even know who it's from. So he goes to the building. He walks in. There's nobody there. It's kind of quiet. And suddenly a janitor kind of or a security guard taps him on the shoulder and leads him into a barren room. Again, he doesn't really know what's going on. He's waiting for hours. All of a sudden, a huge figure walks in the door who has a Medal of Honor lapel pin on his jacket. It's William Donovan. And so William Donovan says to Level, we need a Professor Moriarty, and I think you're it. And Stanley Lovell is thinking to himself, well, Professor Moriarty is the villain. He's the bad guy. So what's going on? But Donovan kind of explains, within the OSS, we're creating this new branch. We need someone to create all the deadly weapons that we're going to be using and sending and sabotaging and agents are going to be carrying into the field. And so Lovell is fairly reluctant, but he decides to join on. How much was this based on the Brits? Is he the new Q here? I mean, where do they get this idea? I don't think it's directly based on that, but that is kind of the general idea. I think it's like more of like a convergent evolution. Sure. You know, just the idea that the, if the OSS is sending agents abroad and they want to sabotage, well, they have to have weapons with which to sabotage. Right. So it's only, you know, kind of logical that we have to have a division that creates those weapons. The book goes into real detail. It's very interesting about all the different types of weapons weapons and gadgets and strategies they will be following. I mean, there's quite a laundry list. Let me just ask you about a few of them. Tell me about the time pencil. Yeah, the time pencil is a device that allows you to delay a detonation. So this is really useful if, say, a saboteur wants to blow up a ship or a building or an ammunition dump or anything, and they want to establish an alibi across town afterwards. So the saboteur can attach this time pencil to an explosive, 
put it on the target, and then set the time pencil. And then it will delay the detonation by 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. And meanwhile, the saboteur can establish an alibi across town. So the time pencil is very useful in conjunction with a lot of other weapons. Mm. One other weapon that it's useful in conjunction with is called a limpet mine. This is basically an explosive, but it can attach to the bottom of ships. So you could row in a canoe next to some enemy ship and attach this limpet mine, set the time pencil, and row away, and it'll blast a hole in the hole, and it'll sink the ship. What does the word limpet mean? I don't recognize that. A limpet is like a sea creature that attaches to ships, oh, okay. and it's just named after that. Gotcha. Yeah. And there are all sorts of mines that they're doing, but they're also doing disguises. I mean, this is real movie stuff that you're talking about. Yeah, in fact, some Hollywood consultants are actually consulted with within the OSS. So <laughs> they're, they're getting some ideas from people who actually do this for a profession for movies. But yeah, some of the disguises are actually very simple, but very ingenious. These are some of my favorite ones are just things you might not think about originally, but then it just seems so obvious, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. So if you want to disguise an undercover agent and make them look, let's say, older, one thing you could do is take some charcoal pencil and just draw it into the wrinkles. Well, it makes your wrinkles look deeper and make you look older. One thing you could do is take some white out or like a white substance paint or something and rub it on your temples and give you a little kind of gray fox, a silver hair. Sure. So there are a lot of little tricks like that. You could stuff newspaper into the soles of your shoes to make you look taller or into one sole of your shoe to make you look like you have a different gait, like a little bit of a limp. Mm -hmm. And along with these disguises, there are ingenious ways to transfer messages. So if you wanted to get like a little paper message from one person to another, and you were worried that they're going to get caught in the middle of it, you might hollow out a pencil and stuff the message inside the pencil and put the rubber cap back on. And it, you know, you can transfer the message that way. One of my favorite ones is for female agents. If they had a tube of lipstick, you might melt down the wax of the lipstick put the message inside the container, and then recast the lipstick over the message. So if you open the lipstick tube, it's just lipstick, but inside the wax is actually the message. So there are a lot of ingenious ways to do that. It's pretty cool to think about it. It's also terrifying. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're confronting a reality that these people are going to go into these situations where they're going to be, in many cases, caught, then tortured, then executed. I mean, these are high stakes that these people are wandering into. What was like, the training behind this? I mean, they had to have had an entire network that didn't exist before the war, right? Absolutely. There's actually a training ground in Maryland at the Congressional Country Club. This is called Area F during World War II. But the OSS kind of requisitions this land and turns the golf course into really just a training ground. Instead of taking tee shots off the holes, they're shooting rifles, mm. you know. So the practice range for golf clubs is now a practice range for shooting guns, machine guns. The sand pits and the ponds next to the holes, those become targets for mortars and all kinds of stuff. But within this training ground, there is a laboratory underneath the clubhouse, and that's where a lot of these weapons that the R&D branch is developing get invented. Now, to train some of these agents, what the OSS would do is it would put them through some courses in secret writing and intelligence gathering and lock picking. So they would know the general tricks of the trade. And then at the end of the courses, they were required to steal secret information from an American defense plant. So basically break into some American plant and gather information and bring it back just to prove that you can do it. And if you get caught, well, then you get caught. But at least you get caught by the U.S. and not by someone else who's going to kill you. Sure. Yeah, so there are a couple stories in the book about people who did this. One of the most 
funniest and famous is a guy named Roger Hall. He wrote a great memoir of the OSS called You're Stepping on My Cloak and Dagger. <laughs> but he talks about this occasion where he's trying to pass his final training test and he gets into this kind of defense plant and he ends up getting an interview with the vice president. He's using a cover name and a cover story. His cover story is that he's some war hero and he's done all this great stuff and I got injured, so now I'm coming back. I want to still help out, so I want to volunteer or work at this defense plant. So the vice president is just riveted. He thinks this guy's the greatest thing ever. So he walks him down to the cafeteria. They're going to get some food, but it turns out there's a war bond rally. And the vice president walks up to the microphone and he says, hey, guys, we've got somebody from overseas who's just been fighting. I want to get him up here and give him a speech. Right. <laughs> so Roger Hall, this is his whole cover story. So he's going along with it. He starts limping to the stage because he's supposed to be injured. So he gives this riveting speech about you got to buy war bonds. You got to write letters to the army officers. You got to do all this stuff. Everyone's cheering afterwards. The vice president offers him the job. There's a write up in the local newspaper the next day, but he never shows up because he got the information he needed. <laughs> I mean, there was almost a marriage because his cover story did so well. He ended up with a man's daughter. Yeah. Yeah. The secretary that got Roger Hall the interview with the vice president, she was the daughter of the vice oh, president. So he kind of schmoozed her over. Yeah. We'll be right back after the break with more from American History Hit. While you're listening, make sure you never miss another episode by clicking like and follow. And while you're at it, please share this episode with a friend or family member. You're our best means for building our audience, and we are most grateful for the help. Thank you so much. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, folks, since you're a fan of history, you clearly want to understand how we've ended up with the world that we have. Well, I'd like to tell you about my show. It's called Dan Snow's History Hit. And on that show, you get a daily dose of history and the stories that really explain just about everything that's ever happened. If you want to know the origin stories of the cities we inhabit, what's in our kitchen cupboards, why we've always been drawn to dictators, the deep history that explains what's going on, for example, in the Middle East, well, we've got you covered. And if you'd rather be regaled with dramatic tales of powerful empires, we do that too. Get a little bit smarter every day with Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
Before we leave this list of weaponry, I just want to talk about a few more. The silent pistol. Did that exist before this or did they actually invent the silencer? I wasn't sure. There are efforts to silence pistols before this, Mm -hmm. but Stanley Lovell creates a really useful design, a simple design that's very practical. And not only is it silenced, but it's also kind of flashless. Mm. So it's a lot harder to detect in both ways. In fact, when Stanley Lovell was working under Vannevar Bush as his aide before he goes to the OSS, one of the things that Vannevar Bush would do to test his aides for potential positions elsewhere, like within the OSS, was give them quizzes. And so one of the quizzes was, If you were stranded on an enemy beach and there were some sentries and you had to take them out, what's the one weapon you would want to have with you? Well, Stanley Lovell thinks this over and he eventually comes up with, I want a silenced flashless 22 automatic pistol. And so he submits that as his recommendation and Vannevar Bush sees that and he kind of wins the competition. And that's what gets Vannevar Bush partly to recommend Lovell to Donovan. I see. And they end up creating this 22 pistol. It's hard to imagine a system being created within wartime and then, you know, having the time and the moments to consider this thing and develop it when missions are going out all the time. So they're basically producing things that are purpose built for that very spy effort that's happening at the moment, right? Yeah, it depends. In some cases, it's very specific, especially with the what's called the camouflage division, the Mm. people who disguise individuals. So for any individual mission, a spy, say, or a saboteur might need something very specific. There are a couple occasions when some of the spies requested French chef's costumes or cucumbers <laughs> or a Volkswagen car or just some crazy individual stuff. They were both successful and unsuccessful. I mean, probably a balance of both, I would imagine. Operation Fantasia is fascinating to me. The brainchild of a businessman, Ed Salinger. Yes, Operation Fantasia is probably the oddest operation that I talk about in this book. It's a psychological warfare scheme. Ed Salinger is working with the OSS as a kind of a psychological strategist. And the idea is that he wants to find a way to demoralize the Japanese. How can we get them to give up this war? Well, he was a businessman who had lived in Tokyo for a long time, so he knew the Japanese language, he knew the Japanese culture, and he thought he hit upon an idea. Within the Shinto religion, there is this concept of what are called kitsune, They're like spirit beings, animal spirit beings that kind of glow. And if you see one, sometimes it represents a bad omen. Mm. So it's like a portent of doom. You don't want to see one of these things because it could mean that something bad is going to happen. Salinger wants to use this to the advantage of the United States. What if the OSS creates some of these fake kitsune? A lot of times they come in the form of foxes. What if we create like these glowing foxes, release them in Japan, then the Japanese might think that this is a portent of doom, a bad omen, and they might lay down their arms and give up the war. I don't know how one necessarily follows from the other, but he's kind of brainstorming this out. Now, the OSS takes this to a surprisingly far degree. Not only originally do they create like balloons that are in the shapes of foxes, so maybe we'll release the balloons. They create whistles that sound like foxes, so maybe the Japanese will hear the whistles and they'll think it's actually these kitsune foxes. But beyond that, the OSS goes to the length of capturing live foxes, getting radioactive glowing paint, painting the foxes, with the idea that we're going to release these live foxes in Japan and scare the Japanese. Now, before they do that, they have to actually test if this is going to work. You know, one of the tests involves, can foxes actually swim? Because to get these foxes to Japan, we're going to have to release them in the water and let them swim to shore. 
So they take a group of foxes covered in this paint into the middle of the Chesapeake Bay and they throw them overboard and it turns out the foxes actually did swim to shore. The problem was that when the foxes got to shore, all the paint had washed off. So now you just have a bunch of foxes. <laughs> An attack of strange foxes coming to the shores. Enough of a bad omen in my book. Bat bombs also, a favorite aspect of this. Strap incendiary devices to them. They go directly into the buildings to roost. The whole place will light up, but it doesn't quite go as well as they planned. Using bats. That's the idea. This is another kind of strategy against Japan. The idea is actually, it has something to it in the sense that instead of dropping incendiary bombs on a Japanese city, the bombs, they don't target well, you know, they could fall wherever, the wind can affect them, it's really hard. A bat is like a heat-seeking missile. What if you strap a bomb to a bat and it's gonna fly into a building or roost in a warehouse or in a lumber yard and it's gonna blow up after a time-delayed explosion and then it's gonna set that on fire. So instead of wasting all our resources on these bombs that probably aren't even gonna hit where we want them to, we can have these heat-seeking missiles directly target buildings and warehouses and lumber yards. That's the idea at least. The bat bomb is tested actually a few times. Some scientists go to Carlsbad Caverns and they swing around these giant nets and capture bats. And Stanley Lovell hires a chemist at Harvard named Louis Pfizer to develop the incendiary device because it has to be extremely small so that these bats can carry it. Pfizer invented napalm, oh, this wow. jellied gasoline that sticks to everything. So that's why Lovell was interested in hiring him. Yeah. So Pfizer comes within the R&D branch. He starts inventing this tiny incendiary, and they actually do some tests with the bats. One of the tests involves attaching to the bat one of these incendiaries that isn't really active. It doesn't actually have napalm in it, but just to see if the bat can carry it. So they cool the bats down in this refrigerator because they want to put them in like a hibernative state before they put them on a plane mm. and fly them up. Now, it turns out that they cooled them down a little too much because when the bats are released from the plane, they didn't wake up and they crash into the desert floor. <laughs> so that, that test didn't quite work. Another time, the bats woke up too soon and they actually had the real incendiary strapped to them. So the bats, a couple of them fly off and roost into a control tower and a military barracks and they blow up and it burns down so the bat bomb actually worked but in a test and you know it wasn't actually to the benefit of the u.s now by the time that this bat bomb was ready the u.s had already developed the atomic bomb and so there really wasn't much reason to send it into the field tell me about the historical evolution into the cia i mean when does the oss shut its doors and become that Toward the end of the war, Franklin Roosevelt commissions a report on the OSS to see how effective it actually was. Mm. The guy who creates this report, who carries it out, his name is Park, he's with military intelligence. So he's kind of a rival of the OSS. He ends up writing this report, which he submits to Harry Truman after Roosevelt dies. And the report is really kind of a hatchet job on the OSS, saying mm. that they're just wasting a bunch of money. They're just playboys. They're just these Ivy League people. They don't really know what war is. And so Harry Truman ends the OSS. He kind of liquidates it pretty soon after the war. However, in 1947, the Congress passes the National Security Act, which creates the CIA. Now, between 45 and 47, there actually was another centralized intelligence organization called the Central Intelligence Group. Hmm. And so the OSS somewhat kind of morphs into that and that kind of somewhat morphs into the CIA. But there isn't really a direct line between them because the OSS is ended and then the CIA is kind of created. Hmm. Um, a lot of the same people 
end up within the CIA, but it's not that there's some sure. kind of order that just changes the name. Well, so many famous names that we hear about as CIA history really begin as the OSS. You got William Colby, Alan Dulles. I was fascinated by Sterling Hayden. I went down the rabbit hole on Sterling Hayden, who plays the weird general or something in uh, in Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, was actually an OSS mm -hmm. agent. Amazing. Yeah. Sterling Hayden, I actually have a neat story related to him because for this book, I found this incredible quote about William Donovan. The quote is saying, oh, he's the kind of guy who would dance on the top of a hotel and he would do all this kind of stuff and he's a crazy what? And it just seemed like, wow, this is a great encapsulation of an interesting personality. I want to use this quote. But in the book that I was reading where the quote was, I looked for the source. Where is this quote from? It cites another book. That cites another book. That cites another book. I went about five or six books deep into this thing, and eventually I realized, wait a second, I've already used a quote that's almost exactly like this in my manuscript when I was writing this book. And it turns out in Sterling Hayden's memoir called Wanderer, he uses the quote, except it's not quite the quote. He's not talking <laughs> about Donovan. He's just talking about people within the OSS in general. Wow. And so I eventually trace this back. One of these authors changed the quote in order to make it about Donovan. And then over time, it just got repeated in all these books. And so Sterling Hayden's the actual one where this quote comes from. <laughs> You know, it's good that you say that because I imagine writing any history, really, but one as interesting and strange as this must be is just a deep dive and almost frustrating, I would imagine, how many twists and turns there are in how this history actually happened. It is a deep dive, especially in the archives. The National Archives in College Park, Maryland are where most of the kind of declassified documents are. I spent a lot of time in there going through all these, but really... There's a lot of archives that you've got to visit. And one of the more interesting stories comes from when I was reading Stanley Lovell's memoir. He has a, a memoir about his time with in, during World War II, mm -hmm. creating all these weapons and disguises and all that. In the memoir, he mentions that he was at a meeting at the National Academy of Sciences where they were discussing biological weapons and biological warfare and how we're going to create anthrax and all this other stuff. And so I'm thinking to myself, well, that's a neat anecdote, but I, I don't have really an archival manuscript that talks about this, so I don't know if I can hardly include that in my book or not. Well, then I realized I've actually done research at the National Academy of Sciences for my dissertation, kind of on an unrelated topic, but I at least took a lot of pictures of documents in there. I went into the documents that I had taken years earlier and realized I had taken a picture of the exact minutes of the meeting where Stanley Lovell was talking about this stuff. So I actually had the <laughs> verbatim dialogue that he's oh, referencing cool. in his book. So I thought, oh my gosh, that is so lucky. That's a good footnote day. Mm -hmm. Later on, I mean, we're talking about the 60s. We start hearing about these assassination, the poison cigar. All of this kind of stuff really has its antecedents in the OSS, in Stanley Lovell's career. But in between, you get MKUltra, which in 1953 is instated. Talk about MKUltra as an evolution of the OSS. Yeah, the head of MKUltra is this another chemist named Sidney Gottlieb. He's from New York. He did his PhD at Caltech. He gets recruited or kind of joins the CIA. And like you said, in 1953, he's put in charge of this program called MKUltra. A lot of the things that Sidney Gottlieb does over his career are eerily reminiscent mm. of what Stanley Lovell was doing during World War II. Lovell was in charge of creating the gadgets, documents, disguises. He was in charge of trying to find truth drugs. He was in charge of doing these drug experiments on people. He was in charge of biological warfare, assassinations, all kinds of stuff. And almost to a T, Sidney Gottlieb is doing that exact same stuff in the CIA. Now, while I was writing this book about Stanley Lovell, 
I kept thinking to myself, I know that Sidney Gottlieb does so much related stuff. I wonder if there's a connection between them two. Surely they knew each other or talked to each other or one was inspired by the other or something. And so I was in the Library of Congress going through some depositions of a lawsuit, reading through people who were being asked questions about their involvement in this MKUltra stuff. And I had the depositions of Sidney Gottlieb, hundreds and hundreds of pages of him answering questions by these lawyers. In fact, this is what my next book is gonna be about, these depositions. Hmm. When I was in the archive though, I didn't have enough time to just read the depositions. I mean, time in the archive is very limited and very precious. So I'm just taking pictures of each page and kind of moving on so that later I'll look at what I've got, but I wanna get as much as I can while I'm in the archive. But as I'm flipping through these pages and taking pictures in this deposition of Sidney Gottlieb, I see the name Stanley Lovell. So I know, oh, he's talking about Stanley Lovell. There's something there. And so I, finally, I know there must be a connection. Now, it took me a long time until I actually got home to then go through and find where this reference is. But then I did find, oh, there is something. There is some connection between Lovell and Gottlieb. And if the listeners want to know, they've got to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. The one that's yet to come, right? Well, I actually talk about it in the last chapter of this book. Oh, I kind good. of draw out the similarities and connections between the OSS, the R&D branch, and then this MK Ultra program. So if you read this book, you should be able to see some of those connections. Boy, you know, all those Bourne movies and everything, it all trades on what was what we're talking about in the MK Ultra stuff. Electroshock therapy, two parts, mind control, LSD, all sorts of stuff becomes part of that effort. And it's very controversial. Senate hearings happen about it. I mean, it's a massive subject matter unto itself. How cool that you got to write this book. I mean, it's top secret stuff. I would imagine it's harder than we think to actually draw the lines and the connections that are required. It can be difficult, but for me, that's one of the fun parts about being a historian. It's almost a treasure hunt. It's detective work. So I enjoy mm. being in the archive and looking and finding, oh, this letter to this guy, I didn't know this existed, but this indicates yep. that he knew this person, you know, so I'm making these connections. That's fun for me. I, I like figuring out the puzzle of what history is. So I enjoy that part. Hear that, kids? History's cool. History's cool. History's fun. I mean, that raises an interesting and useful point about history in general, though. We tend to think about history as synonymous with the past. When we say history, we mean, oh, this thing that happened a long time ago. I tend not to use history in that way, though. When I talk about history, I tend to mean it as a verb and not necessarily a noun. History huh. is the story that we create about the past. We can't go to the past. We can't look and see what happened. We're just using these detective methods to figure out what happened. So it's the story that we're telling. That's what history is. The past is its own thing. History is how we recreate the past. Interesting. John Lyle is a historian of science and the American intelligence community earned his PhD in history from the University of Texas, where he teaches today. The book we've been discussing is called The Dirty Tricks Department, Stanley Lovell, The OSS, and the Masterminds of World War II, Secret Warfare. Very, very entertaining talking to you. I encourage everyone to read the book and to look for your next one about MKUltra. Thank you so much, Dr. Lyle. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hello, folks. Thanks for listening to American History Hit. Each week, we release new episodes, two new episodes dropping Mondays and Thursdays. All kinds of great content, like mysterious missing colonies to powerful political movements to some of the biggest battles across the centuries. Don't miss an episode. By hitting like and follow, you help us out, which is great, but you'll also be reminded when our shows are on. And while you're at it, share with a friend. American History Hit with me, Don Wildman. So grateful for your support. Thanks so much.
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.